Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Is it true you left home for New York City wearing a Keith Richards t-shirt? No spoilers. You'll have to tune in to hear the answer to that question. I left on my 19th birthday. I went out looking for a job. First, I got a job in, in a bookstore, and then I landed a job in uh, Manny's Music, which was a mecca of musicians in, in Manny's on 48th Street, which was the row of music stores in New York City. So I got a job there. That I kept for two years. That's where my whole life changed. Everything. It's like moving to the city and then getting that job. Two years later, I was on a totally different track from where I had been when I left Montreal. You mentioned starting what would eventually become the Upsetter blog with the short story. And this would have been in the very early 2000s. So you're this young newlywed father-to-be working a day job, gigging and rehearsing at night and drafting this story. And as I understand it, the story really began to take on a much deeper hue following the difficult birth of your daughter, Miss Marie. So there's Matt Triber, the musician, who was doing pretty well by the time you started getting serious about writing. Then there's your alter ego, Brett Marie. This is Matt Triber, and this is Brett Marie, and you're listening to the Rock is Lit podcast. Rock is Lit! Welcome to Season 2 of Rock is Lit, the first and still only podcast devoted to rock novels, brought to you by Pantheon Podcast Network. Make sure you subscribe so you won't miss any of the episodes featuring some amazing rock novelists and music experts. I'm your host, Christy Alexander Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page, from Livingston Press. Find me on Facebook at Christy Alexander Hallberg, and Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Christy Hallberg. Visit my website at ChristyAlexanderHallberg.com. If you enjoy the show, do me a solid and pop on over to Good Pods or Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and rating. As always, Wyatt, the Rock is Lit mascot, and I thank you for tuning in. Hello, Lit listeners. We've got another great episode for you. Brett Marie is here to talk about his fabulous debut novel, The Upsetter Blog. Author John Lingan said of the novel, quote, The Upsetter Blog takes us back to the turn of the century when the internet was still a wilderness and new media had not yet upended cultural coverage. Brett Marie's finely drawn characters look to rock and roll for redemption, fame, love, and intimacy. Caught between old ideas of stardom and new possibilities of communication, a roaring road novel debut, end quote. The literary alter ego of rock and roll musician Matt Triber 
Brett Marie is a contributing editor for the online literary journal Bookinista and a staff writer for the website Pop Matters. His short fiction has appeared in various magazines, including New Plains Review, Words Plus Images Press, and The Impressment Gang. His story, If It Had Happened to You, was shortlisted for Love Reading UK's first Very Short Story Award in 2019. He currently lives in England with his wife, musician and writer Roxanne Fontana, and their daughter, Miss Marie. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. You're a musician whose taste I gather tends toward retro and classic rock like Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Elvis, and onto the Stones, etc. I'm curious to find out just how varied your musical interests are. Let's play a set of five questions and find out. Sounds good. What music video made the biggest impression on you? So I, there are two, if I'm allowed to. Sure, sure, go for it. Okay. So there's one, uh, which I guess is, is the, neither of these is actually like a promotional video, but uh, one that I think counts as a, as a music video is the opening to Elvis Presley's comeback special. That's fantastic. That's appropriate for your book too. I, yes, I suppose it is. Yes. Because it opens up on this really tight shot of Elvis's face. And, you know, he's on from the very first second. And it's this this rolling explosion as he goes from the song Trouble, which is a like, sort of a that sort of blues vamp into the rock and roll rockabilly uh, guitar man song that he does a- after that. And I, I absolutely love that because it just feels like Elvis sort of coming back to life after being a joke for, for many, many years. And he does it in like two minutes flat. Yep. So that's the first one. So the second video that, that made a big impression on me was when I was about 16 and I was at a record fair and there were all sorts of vinyl and, you know, bootlegs of all kinds. And there was a guy who had a booth of bootleg videos and the bootleg video that he happened to have on, I believe unless I asked him to, to find it for me and, and put it on, he had a little monitor, a little, a little TV with a monitor that was probably about six to 10 inches. So a really tiny little thing. And he had, ladies and gentlemen, the Rolling Stones playing. Uh, I think he, it was playing Bye Bye Johnny. And this was at a time when it, it just, that did not exist in any form. I, I had never seen any part of it. I only knew about it through hearsay and it just absolutely blew my mind to see on that tiny little screen this incredible concert going on and about three years later i found that video a video cassette of it in a record bin or a video bin in a record store in new york and uh and snapped it up and the quality was absolutely terrible, but it still sent shivers down my spine. And and uh, and I little did I know that you know ten or twelve years later than that, I would be watching it on a big screen in a theater when it was re-released on DVD, and they they put it out in theaters briefly. You know, watching it with my wife and daughter. Uh, when I when I got it, when I first saw it, I was just a kid, and it was it was an absolutely mind blowing experience. What a nice memory! It is. It is. All right. Second question. Yes. You're in a bar and you see your rock star sitting in the corner, nursing a drink yeah. and reading your book, The Upsetter Blog. 
Who is it and what do you do? Well, I would have to say, uh, and this is kind of left field for me because I'm not actually a fan. Uh, I would say Anton Newcomb of the Brian Jonestown Massacre. Really? Specifically. I, I mean, I like the Brian Jonestown Massacre, I, what I've heard of them. I, I, I think yeah. that they're really good and I think that he's quite talented and uh, I find him quite interesting. But uh, I would be going up to him and telling him how uh, in the early 2000s, when this book was germinating in my head, I hadn't quite gotten a bead on the tortured soul of the, the lead singer in the, in the band, in the, in the book. And watching the movie Dig about the sort of the rise and fall and further fall of Anton and his crew, that was actually what, what helped me to, to figure out what my protagonist was going to be going through and what, what was going on in his head. I mean, Jack Hackett, who's the, the protagonist in, or one of the protagonists in my book, is not really anything like Anton, but, but he does share a lot of Anton's, uh, a lot of the stuff that's sort of swirling under the surface, let's say. Okay, yeah, I can see that. So I, I would thank him. Brian Jonestown Massacre played Asheville, where I lived oh, really? last year, I think. I think it was last year. So I did get to meet him very, very briefly. I got to shake his hand. Yeah, I think that from what I've seen, brief snatches of, of interviews and things, he seems a little bit more, um, shall we say, serene now. Not the type to be brawling on stage uh, like he was in the, in the movie. No, I can't see that. Now, the tambourine man, maybe. I, I don't know about him. Oh, yeah. Next question. Fill in the blanks. When I hear blank song, I think of blank. Okay, there are a million of these uh, for me because I'm, I'm very musically minded and everything that every song that I hear will stir up a memory. But I'll give one that just happened to me two nights ago. I was driving and uh, I was just flipping channels on the radio. And for the first time in a few months i heard the studio version of the stones let's spend the night together and i was immediately brought back to the first time i heard that song in full which was when i was driving with a bunch of my bandmates from my first band a band called the durangos and we weren't we weren't going to our own gig but we were going to another band's gig way out of town and i had just gotten my license recently so it was all a brand new experience to me and the the sort of the the driving rhythm of that song and the and the piano and the the vocal and everything which is all just barely out of tune like it it's it's not perfect but and and it sounds really kind of trashy when you really think about it but the the excitement there sort of mirrored the excitement that I felt in, in my heart in, in doing all the things that I was doing, all these new things. And, and when the world was sort of full of all these possibilities in a way that it can only be when you're a kid. What's on your playlist now? 
lots of stuff. Well, in my house, there's a lot of dancing going on all the time. And uh, so the stuff that gets danced to is Ike and Tina Turner all the time and Wilson Pickett these days. Nice. And uh, yeah, and I, I just recently, actually, I was watching a couple of old videos of Oasis and I completely ignored Oasis when they came out. Um, I, I didn't care. And I and Blur even less. I, I didn't even register Blur on my radar. But but Oasis, I came back to. My wife sort of introduced me to them when we met. And I have enjoyed their music a whole lot. And recently, just watching this stuff, this sort of brought them back. I had not even heard of Blur until somebody was on the podcast recently and mentioned that they were her favorite group. And I definitely was not a big Oasis person. So I'm going back and, and listening to that stuff that I missed. Yeah, it's it's worth listening to the first two albums by Oasis. I don't listen to much after that. They're on in I'm I live in the UK and they're constantly on the radio. And I I don't I don't usually go for the later stuff and I don't go almost at all for Noel Gallagher's solo stuff. But I I enjoy Liam Gallagher. I think that even his his current stuff is actually quite good. Okay, I'll give it a listen. What's your favorite rock novel? Can I get two? I go for it. Okay, thank you. I will take uh, for the the literary rock novel that I really really love is uh, Dana Spiota's Stone Arabia. Yes, that one. That's the one about the lady whose brother is a fake rock star who basically writes his own reviews and writes his own biography uh, throughout his life. He's got an imaginary band, an imaginary story, and. Uh, basically lives the rock and roll dream through his writing. And as a writer myself, as somebody who has sort of been in both worlds, it really just, it, it, it really intrigued me. And I, and I really enjoyed the book. My other choice is a little bit more mainstream. And that one is High Fidelity. Because uh, and I, maybe it's a bit of a cliche. But I wouldn't be surprised if other guests on your podcast might have chosen it. But it is just wonderful. Uh, as a music obsessive, to see somebody else who f who has the same passions as I do, who has the same, uh, a lot of the same likes and dislikes, and who also, uh, you know, has this imperfect life that he's bumbling through. Uh, it, it was very enjoyable. Dana was on the show in the first season, and, and we talked about Eat the Document, and she's just brilliant. I listened to it. Oh, you did? I did. Yeah, she's she's a brilliant writer and so much fun to talk to. She is wonderful. I actually interviewed her for a an article I did on her book Innocence and Others and uh she was she was very 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 good-natured, very very nice to me. I like her a lot as an author and as a person. Yes, indeed. Okay, let's take a short break and we'll be back with Brett Marie, author of The Upsetter Blog. This is Brett Marie, and you're listening to the Rock Is Lit podcast. Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. 
Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're back with Brett Marie, a.k.a. Matt Triber, author of The Upsetter Blog. So, first of all, congratulations on getting your debut novel out. Thank you. From what I understand, it only took 20 years from start to finish? <laughs> yes, from the original inception. I didn't have a fully completed book hanging around for 20 years. But yes, it, it, from the time that I started writing to the time that it actually became a physical book, was actually 20 years, yes. Well, I can relate to that. That's about how long it took me to get my novel Searching for Jimmy Page out. So let's hear it for playing the publishing long game. <laughs> but there were a lot of ups and downs in my life during that period that greatly affected the writing of my book. And I know the same is true of you. So before we get into that, let's go way back and talk about your background. And then we'll wind our way forward to 2002 when you first began working on the story that would become the Upsetter blog. So you were born in Montreal in 1979, and I know your dad is American, your mom British. Talk about a melting pot in your own backyard. <laughs> and there's three nationalities all right there. Yes. Well, it's, it's true. What was that experience like growing up with all of those influences? Well, I like to think that it, it made me a well-rounded person. My hometown was just about like any other um, American or Canadian hometown. It was, it was the suburbs of Montreal, and it was a fine place to live. It wasn't, I wouldn't call it a rock and roll place to live, but we, my friends and I got very heavily into music, and we were in a band from when we were teenagers. Uh, I had a couple of bands going on in Montreal, and actually one of my friends who was in, a, in my very first band, um, Adam Brown, was uh, he's a guitar player and a singer, and he has continued on. He is also a successful uh, rock and roll rock and roll player, and he's uh, he's still going at it in Montreal. And um, yeah, so there was a, actually quite a big scene in Montreal while I was there, and I played. There were a lot of clubs to play, and we, you know, and they and they were the right kind of clubs for up and coming people who, who were sort of learning their craft. It wasn't quite 
the sort of the the assembly line of bands that you would get uh, where where nobody would where you'd have like five bands on in a night and nobody was sticking around for the the bands that they didn't come to see. There there was a, a good scene where people were were sticking around and and, and there was a lot of interaction between the bands uh, and that and that was a really positive thing. And then when I left, I, I left for a lot of reasons. But uh, I, I don't regret leaving. But about two years after I left, the scene really exploded, and a, a lot of big bands came out of Montreal. I think the Arcade Fire is from Montreal. Um, I didn't know that. Okay. Pretty sure they're from Montreal. They're definitely Canadian, but I think that they are from Montreal because when they came out, that was sort of something that made me pay attention. So anyway, the scene. I think that the scene died down after that, but it was a good scene to come from. Is it true you left home for New York City wearing a Keith Richards t-shirt? Yes, uh, it was. Yeah. And uh, I left on my 19th birthday. Wow. It was a coincidence. It wasn't it wasn't like a uh, it, it happened to be the day that I was able to. It was a Saturday and uh, my I loaded up the station wagon with my stereo and my record collection and uh, like one suitcase full of clothes. And that was it. And uh, my dad and I drove down and then he left me the next morning. And I was basically where I was, an uncle of mine was, um, he had lived in New York in an apartment in in New York and kept his apartment as an office when he moved to White Plains, just uh, in Westchester, just outside of New York City. And he allowed me to crash in the one bedroom in this apartment office that he had. And so for two years, <laughs> he, he meant to just have me for the summer, but I stayed. <laughs> <laughs> I stayed for two years and, uh, and he was very, very generous to let me stay. And I, uh, yeah, I set up my stereo. I went out looking for a job. First, I got a job in, in a bookstore and then I landed a job in uh, Manny's Music, which was a, the, the big mecca of musicians in, in Manny's on 48th Street, which was the row of music stores in New York City. So I got a job there. That, that I kept for two years. That's where my whole life changed. Everything. It, it's like moving to the city and then getting that job. Two years later, I was on a totally different track from where I had been when I left Montreal. That's incredible. Well, you started playing piano at age five, didn't you? And guitar at 13. I did. You, boy, wow, you're good. <laughs> uh, I did. And then I, <laughs> classical piano. That, that was going to be my question. All right. So you got into rock and roll later. You're playing guitar at 13. But I wonder what kind of music is he into playing piano at five years old? But now I know classical, classical piano. Well, I wasn't into classical music. Uh, <laughs> that's just what the teacher taught. Ah, <laughs> I got it. I, I like classical music, and I had, I've always had an appreciation for it. And I learned a whole lot from the playing. I learned a whole lot about um, harmony and how that music is constructed. And subconsciously, that, will, that has always been there. Okay. But when I started to learn the guitar... My guitar teacher was uh, a popular music teacher. He, he taught me rock and roll guitar. And I ditched the piano lessons, and I literally forgot everything I knew about the piano. 
And so two or three years later, when I wandered back to the piano and sort of sat back down again, I had to start from scratch and relearn everything. Oh, boy. And it contributed to the, the style of piano that I play, because I don't just play guitar. I also play, I also play piano. Okay, so you fell in love with rock and roll, and we're talking Elvis, Chuck Berry, Little Richard, The Stones. Was ACDC your gateway drug to all this stuff? They were. So, yeah. I had, uh, when I was 13, I had, it was basically the first records that I bought. It, you remember like the Columbia House, they used to have the oh, whatever, yeah. 12 records, 12 CDs for, for a penny. For me, it was 12 cassettes. And I bought those and uh, three of those records were ACDC records. And then it was a bunch of other records that uh, I, I'm probably not going to, I'm not going to repeat what they were. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah but yeah uh highway to hell was one of them and i i played that one i, I when i first played it it was it, it i don't know I, I i wasn't open to it yet maybe maybe my hormones hadn't kicked in yet I, I don't know what it was but a couple of months after i got that that record somebody put it on at a at a party and it just blew my mind it, it was one of those things like a light switch going on or or you know pick whatever metaphor you want, but it was just absolutely stunning to me that there could be this, this sound coming out of a speaker and it could do, do this thing in my brain, do this thing in my chest. You know, I, I absolutely loved it. And then I went back to this record that I had, uh, that I'd already bought and just, um, just, just, yeah, dove right in. And then, and the other two ACDC records that I had, I got into those ones in a big, big way. And yeah, so for, for a long time, it was just that. And then I learned from magazines that uh, Angus and Malcolm Young, who were the guitar players for ACDC, that they were fans of Chuck Berry. So I got The Great 28, which is one of the big Chuck Berry compilations that everybody starts with. And that further blew my mind. It was the same on the same level that the first record had done. This one blew my mind. And these were like drugs, and I could not stop from there. I mean, it, everything just... I got piles and piles of records by Little Richard, by uh, by Ray Charles, then and then by uh, you know BB King or Muddy Waters was a huge revelation to me. All of these just came fast and furious in the in in a two or three year span, and it just knocked me out. I know exactly what you mean. I got Willie Dixon and Robert Johnson and even Joni Mitchell through Led Zeppelin. Yep. So that's how it starts. There's just one band. And you want to know more about them and you find out there are artists yep. they like, and then you go and check them out and you just keep going down the rabbit hole. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. I, I, there's, there are a few things in life that give me more pleasure than that sort of digging out something brand new that just knocks you out. Absolutely. Okay, let's, let's talk about writing because you wanted to be a writer from the time you were a kid, but music took hold of you. And it wasn't until you were in your 20s that you returned to writing with aspirations to write fiction. What happened to bring you back? Why then? It's tough to say. So um, I was in L.A. 
and I had been playing music as my my number one thing. That was that was what I was doing since I had been in New York. And then um, in the time that I lived in New York, I met my wife Roxanne, the singer songwriter Roxanne Fontana. So she she was a big influence on me musically at that point. And she also encouraged us both to move to California to to take a crack at, at doing the music in L.A. And while I was in L.A., uh, I. I got a library card for the Beverly Hills Library, and they had a really good selection. I started reading a lot, and I read a lot of novels, and that itch started again. Mm. And I was working at a uh, at a, uh, a limousine service as a dispatcher, and later as an office manager. And I had a lot of downtime, basically between between calls. And I was uh, just just sort of had a creative itch, and so I started to uh, to just sort of jot down things while I was uh, while I was on on there. And it was it was literally like a sentence or two at a time. And I started and it, the whole writing thing came back with a short story about somebody uh, in a rock and roll band. And th- that was the seed that would become the Upsetter blog. And uh, yeah, and, and this was just me feeling like I wanted to create and oh, there's not really a song in me right now, but there's this little story that's starting and I just followed it. So there's Matt Triber, the musician, who was doing pretty well by the time you started getting serious about writing. Then there's your alter ego, Brett Marie, which is an anagram of your name, a la Mr. Mojo Rising, which is the anagram of Jim Morrison's name. Yes. Now, I finally figured out Brett Marie was an anagram of your name because I kept thinking, where did he get Brett Marie? I kept Googling to find out if there, were, there was a famous Brett Marie that I didn't know about. But after I figured it out, I wondered how the hell long did it take him to fool around with those letters until he came up with something usable like Brett Marie, which is a lovely name. Thank you. Well, yeah, I, I toyed with Bertram Ty, but it didn't really sound like it had a good ring. <laughs> no, I'm glad you passed on that one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm a language guy, so I, I, you know, song lyrics, words on the page. Uh, it, so I really like visually and in my brain, you know, um, the, the language thing is, is a big deal to me. So letters rearranging is just part of that. Well, that raises the next question. Why use a pen name at all? Why the need for that separation between your musician life and your writer life? I think it started because when I was getting serious about getting published, I was kind of, I I wasn't very confident in my, in my writing. And I felt like I had an established persona as Matt Triber. I didn't want to be the guy, um, you know, like, like Michael Jordan playing great basketball and then trying minor league baseball and you know, being a, a made a joke. Yeah. So I I decided that I would I would be Brett Marie, and then and then if Brett Marie was, you know, crashed and burned, then that wouldn't affect Matt Triber. But now the secret is out. You're good with the secret being out now. Yes, of course. <laughs> See, now now I've had some success. I have a, quite a presence uh, online as Brett Marie, and and. I think I, I have some solid positive reviews out there. And so now it's, it's just they have to coexist. I can't go back. <laughs> right. I can't go back. I'm living with it and I'm happy with it. All right. Fair enough. Yoo-hoo. Hey, lit listeners, if you're enjoying the episode so far, stop what you're doing and leave a rating and comment on Good Pods or Apple Podcast. I'll leave links in the show notes. 
Seriously, Rock is Lit is a new show in a sea of podcasts. Help me build momentum about this first and only podcast devoted to rock novels. The way to build that momentum and grow an audience, besides listening to the episodes and telling your friends to check us out, is to get Rock is Lit on some podcast lists with your ratings and comments. It'll only take a minute, it won't cost you a cent, and you get some good karma. Links in the show notes. Thanks so much for your support. And now back to your regularly scheduled program. You mentioned starting what would eventually become the Upsetter blog with the short story. And this would have been in the very early 2000s. So you're this young newlywed father-to-be working a day job, gigging and rehearsing at night, and drafting this story. And as I understand it, the story really began to take on a much deeper hue following the difficult birth of your daughter, Miss Marie. Yes. Can you tell me about that experience and how it changed your approach to the novel? Yeah, of course. Well, um, I did not expect... When my wife and I uh, were expecting a daughter, we didn't expect her to have Down syndrome. And so uh, when that was revealed, when she was born, it was quite a, an adjustment. And I loved her from minute one. And so that was no, uh, it, it wasn't some tragedy to us, but it was, uh, it was a life-changing it was a life-changing thing in more than just the usual becoming a parent. It, it, was, it was becoming a parent of somebody who would, uh, who would have different needs and who, who would experience life in a different way than I had expected. And so my experience of life became much different than I had expected. And during the time that I, that I came to terms with that, I, that was when I, I had this story that I was writing. And this had been a short story. Like I said, it was only to do with music. It was going to be about a singer who is a, a, a tortured singer who basically uh, blows a very important gig. And that was it. When that yellow moon begins to beam, every night I dream my little dream. The voice, deep and husky, suddenly appears and the world vanishes, the world of existences. A woman of flesh had that voice. She sang in front of a record in her best dress and they recorded her voice. Suddenly, I don't know why, but I started to ask myself, in this story, why is he blowing this important gig? And the tensions and all of the things that were, were going on underneath in my mind started to sort of seep into my character's mind. And it was very cathartic for me to be able to channel that into a fictional character. Because when you're, when you're writing in fiction, you can, there aren't any, like it's a safe space. You, could, you can do these things and not hurt yourself, you know, not get hurt by by just yes. voicing these things. And you can let your yourself on the page make mistakes and you can let yourself on the page embarrass himself and you don't get embarrassed because it's not really you, but it is. It is really you. So uh, writing as therapy, fiction writing as therapy to me is, is actually quite, quite a good thing, quite a, quite a positive thing. Oh, yes, definitely. Speaking of that, you wrote a beautiful piece about Miss Marie's birth for Bucanista called Shouting at a River. Here's a quote that is particularly poignant. 
This need of mine to connect with Miss Marie may have been egotistical in its first vague pangs, but it sharpened into something different as I completed my first novel. There's a character in that book who has a lot in common with my girl, and though the story is about a lot of things, a big part of it became a sort of love letter to her. On some level, I wanted my story to tell her how much I love her and how happy I am to have her just the way she is, but she's a long way from communicating at the level my prose demands, and by all accounts, it's unlikely that she'll ever get there. And so the one person I want most for my message to reach may be the one person in my life who won't get it. That's heartbreaking. That whole essay is just beautiful and touching. And the character you're referring to, of course, is Patrick, the son of the narrator Henry. Like Miss Marie, Patrick has Down syndrome. Unlike Miss Marie, he's not exactly musically gifted, as I understand that she is. Yes, uh, she is a spectacular piano player and singer. And she has, in uh, the last couple of years, moved on to the ukulele. And uh, we just bought her a guitar for. Wow. Uh, yeah, we bought her a guitar uh, around Christmas time, and uh, she has uh, she started to to take to that, and yeah, so she has. This is this uh, one thing that you can never expect, or there are, there are many things that you can never expect from any child. The lesson that I learned having her as I did um, was from the very beginning. She had defied the expectations that we had of her because she had uh, she had Down syndrome, and I learned just not to think to myself, "Well, she her life is going to follow this path," because I had already thought that her life was going to follow a certain path, and right from the beginning, it was not going to follow that. But if I had then sort of rigidly said, "Well, she's never going to take to music the way I did because she won't be capable," if, if I had not sat with her in front of the piano, if Roxanne and I both had not done music with her throughout uh, throughout her childhood, uh, we would never have known that she had an aptitude for it. And so she's done so much. And when I wrote that essay, she had only just started. I mean, she has gotten so much better. And her rhythm, the way she sings and plays at the same time, and her absolute verve when she, when she performs, it is uh, always a sight to see. And I'm, I'm always pinching myself. So you're in a position to create a character like Patrick in an unsentimental way, in a way that is not condescending, in a way that comes across as completely realistic. What role do you see him playing in the story? His importance to the story comes in later, I think. And I, I don't think people, I, I, I hope people don't predict, it isn't predictable to people. I think that people coming into the story might see him as a way to build the character of Henry, uh, a way to deepen the character of Henry, because there is a lot of pain in Henry. And, and part of part of Henry's pain, which is all to do with his life not doing what he wanted it to do, part of that pain is how Patrick was born. 
uh, and uh, Patrick having that Down syndrome, which he did not expect. And he took a lot worse than I took when it happened mm -hmm. to me. So Patrick is more than just sort of the, he's more than there than just to supply the, the pain that, he, that Henry needs to, to be a deeper character. There will be some sort of resolution, and Patrick will be, I think, an agent in that resolution, and he'll be also an agent in the in the re resolution of the complete story, which is not just about Henry. No, it absolutely is not just about Henry. As such, I'll say just a few more words about that character. Then we'll move on to the guys in the band in the novel called the Flack Jackets. So Henry goes on the road with this band with the idea that he's going to write a blog about their activities on tour, pretty much because Patrick really wants him to. Patrick is a huge fan of the band, and Henry wants to find a way to bond with his son. Okay, let's talk about Jack Hackett, this enigmatic lead singer for the band. He's sort of the front man from heaven and hell, kind of a Jim Morrison sort, in that he's unpredictable on stage but he's completely mesmerizing to watch perform. When I first was trying to figure him out, I went through a lot. It, remember, it started just as a short story. Mm -hmm. And I started out in a, in a, from a point of view of he was very cagey and he, didn't, he, he doesn't want to reveal anything. And my first conceit was that, you know, sometimes when people don't want to reveal something, it's because it's not much to reveal in the first place. Right. And that... That seemed kind of cynical and, um, and you know, not, not very generous to, to the character. And then gradually, as I started to sort of find bits of myself in, in the character as he started to grow, I became more sympathetic to him. And I wanted him to be genuinely compelling, genuinely interesting and deep person. And... That was around the time I was discussing earlier. I saw the movie Dig, in which uh, Anton Newcomb, he's a tortured artist. He's a tortured person who displays that in, a, in an unpredictable, uncontrollable stage personality. And that got to be... I, I don't like some of the arrogance of people like that, like him and Jim Morrison, but I appreciate... A, uh, a wild person on stage, if I, can, if I can get why they're, you know, if I get an emotional attachment to them, and I don't think that it's just a, a, just a performance. Right. Well, talk about a performance. I mean, the first time Henry sees Jack perform, Jack steals a joint from an audience member's lips. He's pretty brazen. Yeah. And when he's on stage, he's very passionately singing, screaming out most of his lyrics. And if he feels the crowd is indifferent or against him, his instinct is to sort of bait the crowd. And, and that's the part that really reminded me of Jim Morrison. Maybe it's because I'm much more familiar with him than I am Anton Newcomb. At one point, you describe a performance as, quote, an unrelenting exorcism, end quote. That's pretty intense. He's an intense performer. He is. And it's, it's actually, it's different from the way I perform. I don't think that, a, that rock and roll has to be intense and it has, doesn't have to be a, you know, this exorcism, uh, but it is, it's so when I play, I don't do that, but I do feel engaged and I feel excited and I feel, I feel the, the if there's a heartbreak in the song, I do feel the heartbreak. Yeah. And if there is ex excitement in the song, I do project the excitement. And, uh, but for Jack, this is the stuff that's in him that he needs to vent, and that's what's what's coming out, and and that's why, 
even though I, like I said, I'm not a fan of, uh, I'm not a real fan of the, of the Brian Jonestown massacre. I, I don't know them very much at all, but I do relate to that. I, I, I do understand the value in that, that cathartic performance. Besides Jack, we have Tim, the drummer, Joe, the guitarist, and Caleb, the bass player. They're sort of a retro rock and roll band. The book is set during 2003, so at that time, bands like Linkin Park and Korn and Limp Bizkit were big, and I'm not a fan of any of those bands. Much more, I'm much more of a fan of, say, The Strokes, which they also came out in that time period. Yep. I love that you gave your own song, Poor Boy, to the band in the novel. Same title, and I'm assuming same lyrics. I couldn't find the lyrics online, but I've heard the song a lot, and it has that kind of retro sound to it. This is Matt Triber, and you're listening to the Rock Is Lit podcast. Hey, folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report. And you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So the Flak Jackets come across as a very realistic, believable band during a time when I could understand how they could be on the cusp because it's, it's like we were looking, or I know I was, it's like we were looking at that time for a different kind of music, especially given what was actually on the scene at the time. Yeah. My novel started around, whatever, 2002, I think it was fall of 2002, and all of this stuff started to happen. And for some reason, I never updated the date that the, that, the, that the setting of the novel was, even though it was getting to 2010, 2012, uh, when I was finishing the first draft. I, I always kept it in that era. And it was because of that feeling that I, because being on Sunset Strip during that time and playing the Viper Room and playing, you know, Tower Records and playing, um, you know, all of these places and knowing the scene as I did and knowing that feeling that, hey, there is a new old, you know, old school rock and roll out there. That music that you love is, is percolating somewhere. And that was exciting to me. And I, you know, I became, when I left LA, I became disengaged from that scene completely. And the scene in, in the UK was a different story. And, and so I, I felt, that 
2003 was a time that was, and the time and place of the Upsetter blog was worth preserving somehow. Well, there's that. And the fact that their first gig was at the Mint in LA, which is still there. The Mint is still there. It's still open. That gig takes place on March 19th, 2003, which is the start of the Iraq war. That's not a good omen for that band. No, there's always these events that, that are happening that, that threaten to overshadow yeah. the band's gigs. <laughs> and that one, that one is a very big one. And that's one that they can't, it's too early on, they can't quite overcome that one. But uh, they, yeah, um, that was another part of that era that, that I thought was, was worth exploring as well, because it, it was this monumental event. I mean, the, the, the country and, and the world isn't quite the same since that happened. And I was at, uh, I, I was there for, for those era. I, I went to the Mint, funnily enough, uh, Roxanne and I went to the Mint the Sunday after 9-11 to see a show. Gosh. They used to have, yeah, they used to have these bands, uh, this band is called Big Beat Sundays. And it was all these people associated with like the Stones and Bernard Fowler, the backup singer for the Stones. He was the lead singer. And Ivan Neville, who played key, uh, who played for Keith Richards, he was the keyboard player, and uh, and sort of all these people who who were a part of that scene. They did. They were. They called themselves the IMF, the International Motherfuckers, and they did a <laughs> bunch. Yeah. It was great, but they did a fantastic show of uh, like R and B and and rock and roll. And uh, anyway, we went on. T- the Sunday after September 11th. And it was a real experience with people who were just, they, they, we weren't sure whether we could have fun anymore. We weren't sure what the, what was ahead of us. And yes. um, they just, they put on a really, really good show for the occasion. And that stayed in my mind of this, you know, we're living in this, this time. It's, it's almost like, oh man, it's like those tumultuous events of the sixties where there was always music in the background. And so even though this wasn't on the top of the charts, it was something that was going on in my, in my world. This music, this constant music that was a soundtrack to all this stuff that was happening in the world. And I, I felt like that it, was a, it made it so that, that those events were a great backdrop to the music that was going on in my book. Yes, and I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. But since we're talking about the Mint, you have another good Mint story. You recorded the song Go All Around the World and the B-side, It's Okay Today at the Mint. Yes. And I, I love this. You were introduced by Terry Reed, who was Jimmy Page's first pick for Led Zeppelin's singer. So that's our yeah. connection. Yes. Hey, guys, you guys. How are you doing? I'd like to introduce B-sides. Trevor. Good. God bless, guys. Go for it. single was released in 2017, but it came from a live uh, record that I did in 2003, in, uh, in November, in November of 2003. 
And I originally, it's it's within a few days of the November 2003 gig that is in the book. I played, uh, I did a live record there and uh and the go all around the world was was that and and uh, it's okay today they were there were there was the a side and the b side which we re- basically had been released in a in a small way uh, a while back and then we we re-released it in a bigger way in 2017 and what had happened was that yeah i i had played this live recorded this live album there and so then that put in my head the idea of having this band in my in my novel record their breakout live record at the Mint because I knew it was possible. I knew my way around the club. I knew about the control room that was right next to the stage. I knew about the layout so I could I could move around in there on the page and, and know that I was doing it right. I have more to say about that song, Go All Around the World. You and your wife, Roxanne, wrote that together. Yes. And that video is fantastic. You're both sitting on a bench in a garden and she's reading an Elvis book and you're scribbling down lyrics, and she serves you tea, and there's a flash of the mint sign. It's a great video. It's a great song. Thank you very much. Yes, I, I've always enjoyed playing it, and um, I don't play a lot of slide guitar, so that was always a, a highlight for me to be able to play some slide. I'm going to go back to the band in the book, and I want to talk about their second gig. It's at Joshua Tree. And this is one of my favorite parts because I freaking love Graham Parsons. I know. Oh, you do? Okay. I do. I, I listened to the episode that you did with uh, where you had Pamela DeBar on. And so I'm, I'm well aware. Oh, geez. Yes. Yeah. And I actually, and to, to listen to Pamela, what she had to say about Graham was actually quite sweet. Going back to that scene in your book at the Joshua Tree Inn, Tim, the drummer in the band, idolizes Graham. And by chance, he gets the key to room eight, where Graham died. What he does after that is very interesting, but I won't say anything more about it. L- listeners, you'll have to read the novel to find out what happens. I was going to ask you, though. If you've been to Room 8 at the Joshua Tree Inn, but I know now that you have. You and Roxanne stayed in that room. Yes, uh, I, I have. And um, yeah, so I had a, I, I could remember the, the sort of the basics and I could remember that there was the, the picture, I think it's from GP, from the first solo record. Mm-hmm. Is, uh, and and that, so that was him sitting in, I think that that actual photo is from the Chateau Marmont, but the, the, he's, he's sitting there. And they had that photo on the wall. It might have changed since then, but uh, but that's what that's the way that it was. And so, yeah, you know, my fiance and I were listening to some of your music before I read the book, and we got to the video for the song "It Ain't Right," which is an Ike and Tina Turner cover. And he said, before I could, he said, "I'm hearing a little bit of Graham Parsons in there. I wonder if he likes Graham Parsons." And then I got to this part in your novel 
which is pretty early in the story. And I was like, yes, I love it. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, if I ever pick up an acoustic guitar, I will often, I, one of the first songs I play will be Streets of Baltimore. Okay. So I, I love that song. Moving to the band, The Flak Jackets. I'm wondering how close your experiences on the road were to their experiences on the road. I mean, they ran out of money and they're wondering what's going to happen next. And they're playing on the stage with a big ass TV screen. Actually, I do know that that happened to you. It did. Yes. Shall I tell that? Go ahead. I can tell that story. <laughs> I'll tell that story. So yes. So that, that was one of my experiences. Uh, we played a place. Uh, it was in Mount Vernon, New York, which is just, just outside the city limit of, of the Bronx. And uh, I was playing uh, one of the earlier incarnations of, my, of the Matt Triver group. And we got in, uh, it was in October. We got into the gig and the other bands were playing and they flipped on a TV screen. It was an enormous, giant TV screen. I mean, for the time, it was, it was unbelievably huge. It looked like a, like a drive-in movie theater screen. It, it was really big. And they set it up right next to the stage, which wasn't such a big deal. So the reason that they set it up right near the stage was because uh, it was the World Series and we're, we're just outside New York City. It's the Yankees versus the Mets. So it's a subway series and everybody has, uh, you know, has skin in the game here. Everybody has somebody who they're rooting for. And it wasn't such a big deal for the other bands because it was the early innings and most people were just watching. When, when we went on, if I'm recalling this correctly, when we went on, it was the ninth inning. Oh, God. And, and like my, my first, my, the first song of the set, if I'm remembering it correctly, the first song of the set, whichever team was down, got, some, got a run and they tied the game. And then for the next 40 minutes, they were, it was like a 13 inning game, or it was like 10 or 12 innings or something. It was really, it, it, went, it went long. And my set was 40 minutes long and they were, they were just wrapping up. Somebody finally, you know, find, one of them finally won by the time <laughs> I, uh, I was on the last, uh, the last song. But uh, I'll, I'll never forget that, this feeling that I'm looking I'm looking out and all eyes are, you know, to my left. Uh, yeah, just this frustration. And, um, and I felt like, you know, what could I possibly do to, to bring them back to me? And I didn't quite find a way myself, but it stayed in my mind. And I found a way for Jack to do something when something similar happened to him. Remember, it's 2003. So one of the big historical moments of 2003 was the ALCS game between the Yankees and the Red Sox, uh, the, the big game seven. Uh, and so I, I tried to sort of weave those two together, knowing how, you know, how, how the band would feel and how the people in the crowd would be feeling, uh, sort of trying to lend some reality from my own experience. Yeah. Well, I'm going to segue back to the novel, to the title of the novel. I love the title of the novel. Not only does it evoke so much of the conflict that goes on in this story, and it gives a hint of the type of performer Jack is, but I really love the title because it comes from the name of the band that backed up Little Richard from 1953 to the early 60s, The Upsetters. Tell me more about this group. Well, uh, the, the Upsetters were a fantastic band who, who, who backed up Little Richard. Exactly. We met, uh, Roxanne and I met the, the drummer from the Upsetters, and he was uh, quite, a, quite a character. 
he had all these stories about about little richard and about touring with little richard and and how he had been the one who had created the intro to you keep a knock keep a knock but you can't come in and you would recognize that one as a lover of led zeppelin because that is note for note or beat for beat the intro to rock and roll yes 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 so we met an originator there So the upsetters, I loved, I, I love Little Richard. I love his, his, his music. And I also think that he, he's one of the original rock and roll wild men. Yep. And so that, that seemed to be something that, that, that would, uh, would make sense to have that sort of thread. And the, um, the, also the, you know, the actual word, the uh, upsetter um, can describe Jack. It can describe, you know, just life being tossed, you know, tossed around uh, and all of that. So, so, so the word upsetter seemed fitting. The actual, like you might've said, the, the actual reason it's called upsetter is because the magazine that he's roped into blogging for is called upsetter. So. So it's going to start off as a blog and then the editor of the magazine is going to bring it into a print edition, but yes, it's called the upsetter. A little bit of trivia for music nerds like me. Jimi Hendrix worked for Little Richard as one of the upsetters in 64 and 65, I think, back when Jimmy went by the name Maurice James. Yes, yes, absolutely. And Little Richard, in every, just about every interview he gave since Jimi Hendrix became famous, would talk about how Jimmy was his guitar player. Even though they, they, I don't think they parted on good terms. I think he was booted out. I was just going to say, I don't think they got along that well because Little Richard thought that he upstaged him. Exactly. And you don't upstage Little Richard. Oh, hell no. All right. I got the idea for this next bit from Peter McDade's rock novel, The Weight of Sound. It's a game called Only Pick One. You can only pick one in each category I'm going to throw out. Got it. Ready? Ready. All righty. First category. Crappy jobs you held while drafting the Upsetter blog. First one, working in the head office of a Beverly Hills limousine service, clerking at Borders Books in Coventry, England, and processing clothing drop-offs at Johnson's Dry Cleaners. I'll, I'll pick Borders, for, uh, working as, a, as a, um, a bookseller, whatever the politically correct term is uh, for a bookseller, uh, in, in Borders in Coventry, mostly because that's actually where most of the novel itself, the, the Upsetter blog, was physically written. So I was, I would stand at this desk all day if I, if they weren't having me shelve books, I would just be standing there waiting for customers to come and ask me questions. And they had these little pads next to the next to the information desk, and I would basically just write on these pads, and I still have them in a bag somewhere these scrawled uh, passages of the book. And my writing is very small. So it's like 2000 words on a little tiny little page that's probably barely legible to anybody but me. And uh, 
the memory of that. I'm not nostalgic for the job or the, or the, or the place or the time so much as I am of that first feeling of, of being a writer in reality. Like I'm, the stuff is coming from my head and it's actually making its way onto the page. The floodgates had never been open like that before. So that's the one. Okay. Borders wins the vote. Category two, <laughs> best cities to play a gig mentioned in the Upsetter blog. Las Vegas, Reno, San Francisco, Los Angeles. I'm going to pick LA because I have fond memories, particularly of, of the Mint. I played there a bunch of times. There was a lot of drama at the Mint. That's part of my, my being. It's woven into my soul sort of thing, that the, the stuff that went on at the Mint is part of what formed me. So I would take that. And there was also other interesting places like the Malibu Inn, which was on the, on the coast. And, uh, and the joint, which was another fantastic place to see a show. It was, it was very cramped with a really high stage. They've renovated it since then, but it, at the time it was a small club and really, really fantastic. Uh, so some, some great venues and, and I have a lot of good memories. of All right. Next section, alcohol featured in the Upsetter blog, beer or wine? Beer or wine? Well, I, I'm actually, uh, I'm actually a teetotaler. I don't like the taste of alcohol, and I know I'm I'm so sorry. <laughs> sorry to do this to you. Oh no 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 no! That is perfectly fine. I should have I should have put tea or coffee in there too. Well, I'll I'll take a good cappuccino. It's a funny thing, and this goes back to that sort of where the the music for me has always been about more than the culture of it, and I love the stories. You would I mean, there's a reason I wrote a book. With, that I did. I wrote the book that I did. I was around a whole lot of people who uh, who did that sort of stuff. But I was also around a lot of people like me who who were really there for the for the music and who were really there for that that the you know the beat kicks in and, and the sound of the guitars and that was that was the thing that that really gave me a high. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, things I, things might have been different for me if I had been part of the you know, part of the, the more of the party culture, but I definitely had experiences around it. An early drummer of mine died actually of a heroin overdose. And I've never quite forgotten that. that oh God. It stays, stays on my mind. Yeah. I didn't know him well, but he only played a couple of gigs with me. Wow. He was, um, he was at the time, he was the best drummer I'd ever worked with. So uh, it was, uh, it felt, I felt it. Oh, of course you did. Well, this is why you can remember the stories. You weren't wrapped up in all that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Next category. Elvis songs mentioned on the ride to Vegas in your novel. Don't be cruel. Trouble. Heartbreak Hotel. Love me tender. This is actually kind of tough. I'm going to pick Don't Be Cruel because it's got that early Elvis uh, where he carries it. He just, he's not even that one. He's not, he's not singing all rough. He's not, he's not like, you know, the one who's, who's th so threatening to, you know, mothers and fathers uh, everywhere. He's, he's got a smooth voice, but his energy is, is still carrying that song in, in a big way because it's, it's so spare, you know, it's, it's, it's not the most spare of them all, but, it, but he's definitely, he's, he's able to carry that song and make it exciting in ways that you would, you would expect to need a, like a really big band to, to be as exciting as it is. You know I can be found Sitting home all alone If you can't come around 
Okay, last category. This one's important. Really think about this. Best rock guitarist. Oh, you're smiling. You already know what I'm going to say. I do. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. Okay. I'm going to say, let's, 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 let's dig down here. Let's dig down. I'm going to say, Jimmy Page session musician, Jimmy Page yardbirds, Jimmy Page Zeppelin. Okay. And that, that's the way I'm going to get through this because he's, He's not actually in my top five guitar players, so I will. I I I appreciate him very much, but I, he's not my my top five. So I will say, but I will say, Jimmy Page session musician, because I have had so many times have had the experience of listening to one of you know a hundred different bands or or uh, solo acts in uh, from Britain in the '60s and thought. Man, that guitar solo was great. Even if the song is terrible, boy, that that guitar was was really really good. It's just even the even the acoustic guitar sounds good uh, on one record or another. And I'll find out that it was Jimmy Page. And so, for him to have had his fingerprints all over so many songs, and to have given the just the right thing that was needed for any of those songs is a that's a talent that's equaled in my opinion to just having your own voice where you you know, where this, you're identifiable as yourself, but maybe you can't play any other way. I like that answer. Thank you. This has been a hoot. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. What have you got going on now that you want to tell listeners about? Well, uh, Roxanne and I are working on a, uh, a movie that is to do with her, her record, Phantasmagorgie. And so we've been doing that. And I'm always working uh, as sort of a utility player for her and uh, uh that's that's what i'm doing musically right now uh the my own music will come back sometime soon but writing wise so that, that's what matt driver was doing brett marie has a he's i'm on my fourth or fifth draft of the second novel this new one is about a hermit who plays a terrible ukulele interesting you have to hurry up and finish that I definitely want to read it. Well, when the time comes, I'll send you a proof and uh, you can tell me if you'll, if you'll have me back. I would love to have you back. This was so much fun. It's been great for me. Great. Where can folks go to find out more about you? You can Google me. You can go to Owl Canyon Press, uh, which has the Upsetter blog. It's also on, you know, the big names. <laughs> you can get my, my work on, uh, on bookanista.com. I have... Uh, a ton of of essays and reviews and short stories on there and i also am a staff writer for pop matters so there's a, there's a few articles there as well i know i only referenced one piece that you wrote for a bookanista but i read several and they're all fantastic and i wish you so much luck with this book it's a great novel i'm thrilled i got the chance to talk to you about it oh you make me blush it's been a real pleasure talking with you i've enjoyed the podcast thoroughly the episodes that I've listened to. And I, I look forward to diving into your work as well. Oh, thank you. Love 
that the mascot? Yes, that is the mascot. <laughs> Making his presence known. <laughs> Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Rock is Lit to hear from more great rock novelists and special guests who will offer commentary on the music or musical events featured in these novels. If you like what you hear, subscribe, follow, and spread the word. And check out the Rock is Lit vault on my website for news, bonus material, and outtakes from episodes. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is lit. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.